Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Today marks 56 years, as John Fugelsang tweeted this morning, of people believing that one bullet caused seven wounds on two men. Uh, it is the, uh, I shouldn't laugh, it's a, a tragic anniversary, actually, the 56th anniversary of the assassination of President John Kennedy. And to look at why is Donald Trump still withholding so many of these JFK assassination files, many uh, that actually involve Watergate. So I wanted to get uh, my old buddy, Lamar Waldron back, my old friend and collaborator. He and I worked on two books together, Ultimate Sacrifice and Legacy of Secrecy. So anyhow, we got a lot to get to today, but I'm gonna lay out a few news stories that I think that we all need to know about and for the rest of the hour. By the way, I have an op-ed. It just went up over at Alternet. It'll probably soon be on Salon and Common Dreams and Raw Story. I'm not sure where all Los Angeles Progressive, LA Progressive. There's a bunch of different publications that typically pick up my articles. They're syndicated by IMI, the Independent Media Institute. It's titled Revenge of the Billionaires, How an Oligarchy of the Morbidly Rich Can Take Down Democracy. And it's about this whole civil war issue of the Atlantic that's out right now and how civil war has been essentially declared on all of us. And apropos of that, also, I did an interview with Chauncey DeVega last week, and he did a marvelous job of cleaning it up and editing it. And uh, it's over at ChaunceyDeVega.com, but it's also on Salon.com right now. Okay, some of the stuff in the news. CNBC is reporting that Mitt Romney has launched a new Republican attempt to cut Social Security and Medicare. This is a rehash of the Romney-Ryan plan from 2012, basically privatizing large chunks of both Medicare and Social Security. Romney's working on this. The Progressive Change Campaign Committee has a petition up that I would refer you to to say no. We don't like Mitt Romney's plan to cut Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security. You can find it at PCCC. You know, the one thing that they don't put in their emails is what their actual URL is. It's just a hot link to it. So you may have to Google Progressive Change Campaign Committee. Mark Carlin, another old friend of mine, uh, he's the editor of BuzzFlash.com, which has been revived now. It used to be one of the top progressive uh, websites and is moving in that direction again, buzzflash.com. Mark had taken a few years off from working on this, but he's back. And he's got a new piece titled, Devin Nunes Endangers Our National Security as a Putin Puppet. It's really worth reading. There's, a, there's an enormous amount of background in there. And in fact, maybe we'll, we'll get Mark on next week to talk about it. The gaslighting has begun from the Trumpies and from the media. And this morning, NPR, I heard this this morning, I listen to NPR in the shower and I turned on the radio and they're talking about it. Mike Pence and his high school term paper about, you know, Lincoln finding Jesus and all this stuff. I mean, it was just, you know, they're, you know, get ready for this wonderful man, President Pence. He might be coming. And if he's not coming, you know, he might be running for president in 2024 or, you know, he's such a good man. And, of course, all over the media, you know, this is good news for Trump. Trump is, everything's good. In fact, over on, actually, in multiple news outlets right now, 
they're reporting, the, but this was on Fox News this morning, Trump went on Fox and Friends and told a bunch of lies, I mean, just a whole bunch of explicit lies, said CrowdStrike was a Ukrainian company, for goodness sake. Now, keep in mind, yesterday, Trump had a lunch with a large handful of Republican senators, the people who will be the jurors in his trial, Susan Collins and Mitt Romney and, you know, a bunch of the usual crowd. And uh, after that lunch, he's like, all of a sudden, he's quite enthusiastic to have a trial in the Senate. In other words, basically, they told him, don't worry, the fix is in. And because of that, I would say to our elected representatives, were I to call 202-224-3121, I would say now is not the time to wrap up the investigation. They already have their narrative about, well, there was no quid pro quo. The aid got released. The president of Ukraine will not say that there was a quid pro quo. I mean, there's so much going on here. This White House refusing to, uh, you know, I mean, basically defying Congress. I think Congress just needs to declare an all-out war is the wrong, you know, I hate that metaphor. There have been so many crimes that Trump has committed from the get-go. From, I mean, you know, the get-go was the whole emoluments clause thing, which appears twice in the Constitution. You know, where it talks about compensation for the president, it says he'll receive a salary and no other emolument. Well, he's making a fortune. I mean, there's a quarter million dollars that the Secret Service has paid to Trump properties that nobody can even figure out why. And getting Giuliani and Bolton and Mulvaney and, and uh, Lev Parnas, I mean, you've got these two guys. Lev was apparently with Giuliani in a meeting with Zelensky's guy in Madrid. So, you know, these guys, there, there is more there there. And I, don't, I personally don't think now is any time to stop, even though I know that, you know, you've got all these Republican consultants who come onto MSNBC who don't like Donald Trump, but they're Republicans. And they're saying, well, I think this needs to get wrapped up right away. And people, you know, kind of uh, concerned trolls, right? Well, gee, if this goes on very much longer, the six Democratic senators who are running for president won't be able to go out and be on the stump. And so what? I think the fate and future of the republic is more important, frankly. I really do. I mean, this is the essence of the op-ed that I wrote on Alternate, uh, Revenge of the Billionaires, that we are sliding into oligarchy. In fact, I would say we are in oligarchy now. We are no longer a, a small-d democracy. And we need to raise the alarm about this. Lev Parnas, you know, Igor and Lev, right, also helped Devin Nunes' investigations. These are things to look for in the news, right? When you're reading Daily Kos or, you know, any of the other great websites out there, Common Dreams, Alternet, Raw Story, Salon, L.A. Progressive. There's just some amazing stuff. Elizabeth Warren is talking about how, and this news just broke yesterday, that a couple of days ago or a week or so ago, Mark Zuckerberg, when he was in town, when he was in D.C., he had a secret lunch at the White House with Trump. And so now musicians and other people are actually starting to take down their Facebook pages and saying, you know, it's becoming quite obvious that Facebook's politics are right wing. I think this is probably why they disabled my personal account. I literally, in, in, the, in the 10 or 15 years that I'd had that account, had posted maybe six things. And they were all about family. I mean, it was, a, it was one of those accounts where you don't let the public see you. And it's just the people you know. But they took it down, which is fine with me, frankly. I mean, you know. But Zuckerberg, he's been meeting with Peter Thiel, another right-wing billionaire who writes for The Washington Post. And Elizabeth Warren is saying, amid antitrust scrutiny, Facebook is now going on a charm offensive with Republican lawmakers. And now Mark Zuckerberg and one of Facebook's board members, a major Trump donor, had a secret dinner with Trump. This is corruption, plain and simple. I agree with her. Speaking of Elizabeth Warren, she was uh, speaking at Clark Atlanta University yesterday, and her speech got interrupted by a bunch of demonstrators wearing black T-shirts with uh, that said "Powerful Parent Network" on them, shouting, "We want to be heard! We want to be heard!" Turns out this is a group uh, reportedly funded by the Walton Family Foundation. Yes, the Waltons, the richest billionaire oligarch family in America, and they're in favor of for-profit private schools instead of our having public schools. Surprise! It's the Walton family, and their suckers interrupted Elizabeth Warren yesterday. Over on Common Dreams, 
Uh, Medea Benjamin is writing. She just got back from Bolivia. We're going to try and get her on the show next week as well. But she says, I'm writing from Bolivia. This is on CommonDreams.org. The title is, They're Killing Us Like Dogs, A Massacre in Bolivia and a Plea for Help. Keep in mind, the, the oligarchs have taken over Bolivia and evicted the first indigenous president of that country, Evo Morales. I'm writing from Bolivia just days after witnessing the November 19 military massacre at the Sencata gas plant in the indigenous city of El Alto and the tear gassing of a peaceful funeral procession on November 21st to commemorate the dead. These are examples, unfortunately, of the modus operandi of the de facto government that seized control in a coup that forced Evo Morales out of power. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Proof of Conspiracy, How Trump's International Collusion is Threatening American Democracy by Seth Abramson. This is from the introduction. In late 2015, after Donald Trump has formally announced his candidacy for president, a geopolitical conspiracy emerges overseas whose key participants are the leaders of Russia, Israel, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt. These six men decide that Trump is the antidote to their ills. For Russia, U.S. sanctions. For Israel, the lack of Arab allies. For Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt perceive threats emanating from Iran. The conspirators commit themselves to doing whatever is necessary to ensure that Donald Trump is elected. Trump's presidential campaign is aware of and benefits from this conspiracy both before and after the 2016 election. On March 19, 2018, British journalist David Hearst, the former chief foreign lead writer, leader writer for The Guardian, publishes the most important report of his career. Hearst, at one time the Moscow bureau chief at The Guardian, is now editor-in-chief of his own publishing venture, a London-based Middle East watchdog called The Middle East Eye. In the spring of 2018, he reports the existence of a years-long continent-spanning conspiracy that will eventually envelop the President of the United States the Red Sea Conspiracy. This book dominates the, excuse me, denominates the conspiracy Hearst uncovers as the Red Sea Conspiracy for the simple reason that it is hatched on a yacht in the middle of the Red Sea, a seawater inlet of the Indian Ocean bordered by, among other countries, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. One imagines that in his many years as a correspondent and commentator for the Scotsman, the Huffington Post, Al Jazeera, El Arabi, El Jaid, TRT World, which is Turkish, uh, Masar al-Aghan, Egypt, and The Guardian, Hearst never thought he'd stumble on a story as far-reaching in its implications as the Red Sea Conspiracy. But he did, and what he found could change the course of history. This book chronicles the events around the globe that preceded and followed the fall 2015 origin of the conspiracy, with a special focus on how the conspiracy prompted Donald Trump and his aides, allies, and associates to covertly collude with six countries, both before and after the 2016 presidential election. Russia, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Israel, Bahrain, and Egypt. Events that began on the Red Sea in 2015 now influence President Trump's foreign policy toward all of these countries, toward other countries not involved in the conspiracy, such as Qatar and Iran, and more broadly toward Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. The story of the Red Sea Conspiracy begins with, begins with a man named George Nader. As reported by Hearst in the Middle East Eye, toward the end of 2015, Nader, then an advisor to the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, Mohammed bin Zayed al Nayan, known as MBZ, convened, with his patron's permission, a summit of some of the Middle East's most powerful leaders. Gathered on a boat in the Red Sea in the fall of 2015 were Mohammed bin Salman, known as MBS, Deputy Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, who would shortly become the heir apparent to the throne of the Saudi Kingdom. MZB himself, by 2015 the de facto ruler of the United Arab Emirates. Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, the President of Egypt. Prince Salman bin Hamad, the Crown Prince of Bahrain. And King Abdullah II of Jordan. Nader, the improbable maestro of these rulers' clandestine get-together, intended the plan he posed to the men to include the nation of Libya, but no representative from that nation attended the gathering. Of the leaders aboard the yacht, too, MBS and MBZ are already close. According to a New Yorker interview with Richard A. Clark, a counterterrorism advisor to Presidents Barack Obama and George W. Bush, 
MBS and MBZ, quote, talk on the phone all day to each other, end quote. According to two sources briefed on the 2015 Red Sea Summit, quote, Nader said this group of states could become a force in the region that the United States government could depend on to counter the influence of Turkey and Iran, end quote. Prior to 2015, Turkey and Saudi Arabia had intermittently enjoyed strong diplomatic ties. The book Proof of Conspiracy by Seth Abramson. With all the problems unfolding for the Fed and central banks, you may be asking some very important questions. How close are we to the next economic collapse? What will it look like just before the crash? And how can I protect my investments and my retirement? There are a few people better suited to answer these questions than ITM Trading's chief market analyst, Lynette Zhang. Her fact-based research on the markets, currencies, and economy is second to none, and her videos have prepared people for almost every major downfall in the U.S. economy this year. If you haven't heard of Lynette Zhang and ITM Trading, I highly recommend looking them up. They're pioneers in economic education, and they're experts at creating strategies to protect you against the next inevitable crisis. If you're looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile economy since 2007, go to youtube.com slash ITM Trading. I recommend learning as much as you can before the next crisis hits, so you can make the most educated choices while there's still time. That's youtube.com slash ITM Trading. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. And boy, what an amazing time, right? What, what an amazing time we live in. Today is the anniversary, the 56th anniversary of the assassination of John Kennedy. And my old writing partner and buddy, Lamar Waldron, and every time he comes on, people are just like, this is must listen to radio. He's going to be talking about how the Kennedy assassination was tied into Nixon and Watergate and how that is tied into Donald Trump, an ongoing cover-up that Donald Trump is now participating in. Today we're going to be touching on Lamar's book, Watergate, The Hidden History, Nixon, the Mafia, and the CIA, and his other book, The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination. And uh, Lamar, welcome back. Great to be with you again, Tom. It seems like there's always something new to talk about. Yeah, well, this is amazing, you know, Trump and all this. But uh, let's start at the beginning. What's the current status of these still unreleased JFK assassination files? Well, there's one date that everyone agrees on, and that is that Donald Trump delayed releasing. So, so all these files were supposed to come out a couple of years ago. Congress had you know, done all these investigations, and, and they had passed this JFK Act back in 1992 unanimously in the wake of the Oliver Stone JFK movie. Four and a half million pages of files were released over the years, but all the rest were supposed to be released a couple of years ago. And so, and people thought they might be released literally that day. But Donald Trump punted once, and then he punted again. And so the new date to supposedly release all the files is October the 26th, 2021. Oh, geez. After, so after he may even be long gone. So why would Trump care? I mean, why is he still keeping these files secret? What, how does this, what's, what's in it for him, if it, or what might hurt him if they're released? Well, and, and, and to understand that, let's talk about the number of files, because so officially there's almost 16,000 assassination records censored and still withheld in whole or part, mostly by the FBI and CIA. But now those are, uh, the official word is uh, almost 16,000 assassination records. Now, one, I've seen one record be 500 pages, be 200 pages. There's no telling how long, you know, your record and my record is at the CIA, right? Yeah. So, I mean, who knows how many hundreds of thousands of pages that is. Now, that's the official total. The unofficial total that NBC revealed uh, back in the late 90s, back when we thought we had most of them except for a few thousand, was millions, millions and people will hear today as we go through exactly why there could be not thousands, but millions of pages of records still unreleased. So that's the numbers we're talking about. It's massive. Yeah. You know, even, if, even if you look at the official number, it's big. If you look at the unofficial number that NBC News reported, it's massive. So you ask, why would Trump care? So I only recently realized, you know, you and I usually talk about 
the JFK assassination every November. And then in June, we usually talk about Watergate on the Watergate anniversary. But it's really only uh, in the last few days I realized that I was getting ready for this show and, and to maybe finish the article I've been working on for three years about the, the top 10 JFK assassination files that are still withheld. I realized how many of the still withheld files, in fact, the vast majority of the still withheld JFK assassination files relate in some way to Watergate. So originally I had thought a couple years ago, well, Trump must be worried the FBI or the CIA have dirt on him and and they're none too subtly threatening to release it. So he better go along with holding these files. But I've realized, and now that we're in the middle of impeachment, it just jumped out at me. My God, most of the JFK assassination files still secret involve Watergate in one way or the other. And now that we're mired right in the middle of impeachment, yeah, that becomes really clear. And, and as we go through, and you and I have talked before, and I'll hit the high points as we go through, you know, I mean, it was Nixon that first said that Trump was going to be president someday. I mean, it was Roger Stone who introduced, the recently convicted Roger Stone, that introduced Trump to Nixon. Nixon saw in Trump a man who could continue on with the criminal activities in illicit money-making that Nixon himself had perfected so well in his long political career. So Trump is very definitely and has inherited the mantle of Richard Nixon. And I think Trump realizes, and I think he even realized a year or two ago, because he knew knew the crimes he committed, Trump did, to win the election. And I'm sure he knew through Roger Stone the crimes that uh, both election in 1968 and then re-election in 72. Yeah. So it being the anniversary of Kennedy's assassination, what's the best way to help our listeners understand exactly who killed Kennedy and why and how that relates to Watergate? Let's start in 1960. And I know JFK was killed in 1963. But if we start in 1960 and take a snapshot there before we go to 1963, your listeners will not only understand much better who killed JFK, but they'll also understand where Watergate started, because in many ways, Watergate and the JFK assassination both started in 1960. So that that would be a great place to start if you want me to jump right in. Go, Go for it. Okay. So basically, Richard Nixon in 1960 was the vice president for President Eisenhower. And Richard Nixon had used the mafia in his political career to get elected and reelected from the time he ran for Congress and the Senate, then for vice president. I mean, he was just thick as thieves with the mafia, the L.A. mafia. Mickey Cohen admitted, who was the uh, big Los Angeles mob boss back in the uh, 40s and early 50s, you know, admitted giving Nixon all this money. Nixon's top political hatchet man advisor, Murray Chotner, was, and, and, and Chotner's brother, they were basically um, mafia lawyers for uh, the L.A. Mafia's bookies. So, so Nixon had, had, had had mafia support from day one. You know, he, he, had, he had helped to get, you know, Eisenhower to drag their heels on the mafia and going after them. So that created the opening for Senator John F. Kennedy in the late 1950s to start going after the mafia with his brother, uh, chief counsel on a, on a uh, Senate committee, Bobby Kennedy, they went after the mafia. That's what made Kennedy famous, was going after the mafia and the mafia's ally and, and money man, Jimmy Hoffa. And, and JFK announced his race for president in the same room where he held all these hearings, and they would, they would try to get people like Senator Traficanti to testify. Traficanti would hide out in Cuba, but they would, like, drag Sam Giancana. They would drag... Um, who's, uh, Sam Giancana wasn't a godfather. He was the mob boss of Chicago. And, but they would drag the godfather of, of Texas and Louisiana, Carlos Marcello, and, and grill them. And so the mob just hated, just hated the Kennedys. And the Kennedys were running on an anti-mafia, uh, you know, let's put Hoffa away platform. So the mafia clearly, you know, Kennedy getting elected was the worst thing that could happen to them. So they threw all their support to Richard Nixon. Now, uh, Nixon was also uh, um, trying to get rid of Fidel Castro. Nixon loved dictators. He had loved the dictator of Cuba, Batista. Nixon even had business interest in Cuba, uh, illicit ones. But, of course, Castro came along with a lot of other Cuban revolutionaries, took over, ran Batista out. So Nixon wanted to get rid of Castro. Uh, Castro even went to Washington, talked to Nixon, begged, literally begged for help from the United States because Batista had stolen most of the Cuban treasury. 
And instead, he just got a lecture from Nixon, and Nixon immediately after the meeting started working with the CIA to say, let's, let's kill Fidel. But by the summer of 1960, just months before the election, uh, Nixon had to ratchet that up. So he literally ordered the CIA to work with, with the mafia, in particular, Santo Traficante, the godfather of Florida, and um, a guy named Johnny Roselli, who worked for Sam Giancana. Uh, they wanted Traficante because Traficante had the casinos in Cuba. Um, and, and also helping in that was, was Carlos Marcello. So there was a package deal that was done. Nixon was going to stall charges against Jimmy Hoffa because the Kennedys had exposed what a crook he was. And the mafia would give Nixon a million dollars to help him win because they were terrified of Kennedy winning and the mafia was going to help to kill Fidel Castro right before the election. That was going to be the big October surprise that would help elect the mob's candidate, Richard Nixon. And that's what became the Bay of Pigs invasion later, right? Well, that, that led to that. And then three Watergate figures, E. Howard Hunt, Bernard Barker, and Frank Sturgis, worked on those CIA mafia plots with the CIA and the mafia to try to kill Fidel Castro before the election for Richard Nixon. And Hang all three on. of them. This is the Tom Hartman program. And all three of them. Later on, show up in Watergate. They there are you go. key Watergate figures. Uh, let's see here. Steve in Napa, California. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, I just want to talk a little bit about David Lifton's book that came out on the Bethesda autopsy uh, roughly in 2000. Yeah. The story goes something like this, that a lot of the Navy people that were working at Bethesda testified that uh, basically the two caskets arrived at Bethesda, one with the official casket, which, you know, was accompanied by Jackie Kennedy, and then another one that came in earlier. And, uh, you know, three or four, five of them that testified to that story one way or another. And then they went back to the official log that was at Bethesda and found that, indeed, there was a record that that casket came in earlier. And the, the story goes that a guy named John Leggett, who was supposedly one of the top Reconstruction guys that worked for as a coroner, I don't know what his official title was. His, his story is pretty complicated, but, you know, that some surgery was done on the back right of Kennedy's head to repair that that wound right. that was, yeah. To clean him up for the uh, whatever. Bobby right. Kennedy was actually supervising the autopsy. And the reason why, some would argue, and it has been argued by a number of people who were there, that the body was essentially mutilated so that you couldn't do a good forensic analysis of where the bullets came from, was because mm -hmm. at that point in time, uh, one of the very first things that the conspirators in this thing, the mob, uh, Carlos Marcello and Santo Traficati, the mob guys and their buddies who were mobsters who worked in the CIA, one of the very first pieces of information that they got into the press was that Lee Harvey Oswald was the shooter. And Lee Oswald was a name that Bobby Kennedy recognized because he had been part of, it's a long story, but in, in any case, Bobby Kennedy recognized that name. And that it led to this connection to Castro. And this was what convinced Bobby and a bunch of other people, by the way. And they held this conviction for a few months that Castro was the one who had killed Jack Kennedy. And that's why they initiated the cover-up. And that's why the Warren Commission, you see that picture of Earl Warren walking out of uh, Lyndon Johnson's office with tears in his eyes. LBJ basically just told him, we've got to cover up the assassination of President Kennedy because the American people find out that Kennedy was killed by Castro or by an agent of Castro because Lee Oswald had been at the Cuban embassy down in Mexico City. And that was all being reported in real time at that time that the American people will demand that we strike on Cuba. And the, I keep in mind, this was just a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, Can I just add one thing? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, well, I mean, part of the story was that the only chance they would have had to switch the bodies out was when LBJ insisted that Jackie come. And they, the, the Jackie was by the casket side the entire time, and the only time she was away from it is when LBJ insisted that she come for the swearing-in yeah. ceremony. Yeah, which I'm, not, I'm not I'm not. They switched the casket. There was another body theory. I, you know, to the best of my knowledge, Steve, they simply, you know, opened up and explored the wounds in a clumsy way that made it, that would have made any kind of forensic analysis very, very difficult. Steve, thanks a lot for the call.
If you couldn't sleep because of an uncomfortable mattress, you'd buy a new one, right? So why are you still sitting in the same uncomfortable office chair day after day? Take my advice and take your comfort and productivity up to the power of X, we're the world's finest office chair, the X chair. With 10 customized ergonomic adjustments and patented dynamic variable lumbar support, DVL, you'll appreciate the X-Chair difference the very first time you sit down in one. I love my X-Chair, and trust me, if you're sitting in anything other than an X-Chair, you're sacrificing true comfort and productivity. Give yourself the gift of an X-Chair. Your body and your bottom line will thank you. X-Chair is on sale now for 100 bucks off. Go to xchairtom.com. That's the letter X, chair, T-H-O-M.com. Or call 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. X-CHAIR comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. And you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWHEELS for a free set of the new X-WHEELS with your chair. xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com. So, Lamar, after Nixon lost the election, what happened to these CIA mafia plots that uh, were started in the, in, during the, the election year of 1960 to help Richard Nixon beat Jack Kennedy? Well, I should point out, the mafia came very close. They got one of their men who worked with Johnny Roselli, uh, a wire man from the Chicago mafia, who was also the number two man in the Cook County, Chicago uh, Sheriff's Department. They actually got him inside Castro's office before the election with some CIA poison. It, it didn't work out, though. They had another attempt that didn't work out through one of Castro's mistresses. So they it's, came through attempts close. to ass assassinate Castro. Right, to assassinate right. Castro. They came real close. But so after Kennedy gets sworn in, he is never told about these plots. And the CIA continues them. So they, they, they sell him this bill of goods on the Bay of Pigs, which could have never worked because a few thousand Cuban exiles could never defeat the entire Cuban army and militia, right? But... The, the CIA was certain that Castro would be dead because Traficanti and Roselli and Marcello would make sure of that. But because E. Howard Hunt, so E. Howard Hunt was a career CIA officer, kind of a medium level CIA guy. He didn't like a couple of the liberals that the Kennedys wanted in the new Cuban government if, the, if, the, if they'd been able to depose Castro. So he quit right before the Bay of Pigs invasion, so the assassination wasn't carried out. So it was just a big mess. But guess what? The CIA continued those plots without telling JFK and Bobby. Bobby and JFK briefly found out in May of 62 in hindsight, that there had been plots. They promised they would never do it again without telling the Kennedys, Bobby being the attorney general by then. And, of course, the CIA, in particular a gentleman by the name of Richard Helms, who headed covert operations in the CIA, continued those plots into 1963 without telling the president and without even telling JFK's new CIA director, John McCone. So those plots involving the mafia, the same mobsters that the Kennedys are going after, great guns. I mean, the Kennedys didn't just promise to go after the mafia when JFK was elected. If he was elected, they really went after them. They deported Marcello, who had to sneak back in. They, they, you know, they were pressuring uh, not just Traficanti, but his family. I mean, they... The, the mob's backs were literally against the wall in 1963. So that's the situation there. But now Castro was still in power, too. The Kennedys weren't about to use the mobsters they were going after to try to kill Fidel. I mean, that wasn't what they were about anyway, right? They wanted to bring democracy to Cuba, not just install another dictator like Nixon. So as you and I were the first people to ever discover and report, and, and you fully deserve half the credit for this, um, the uh, number three man in Cuba, the highest black official in Cuba, the head of the Cuban army, reached out to JFK in May of 1963, six months before the, JFK was assassinated, and said, look, if you'll back me, I will overthrow Fidel Castro, and I'll work with your people, and we'll set up a coalition government, and we'll bring democracy to Cuba. And so that's what JFK and Bobby were very much concerned with in 1963, was overthrowing Fidel with the head of the Cuban army, and going after the mafia. But okay. those two things would prove deadly. We're talking to Lamar Waldron. He's the author of uh, numerous books, most recently Watergate, The Hidden History and The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination. 
1960, Richard Nixon reaches out to the mafia who has supported him his entire political career and says, if I'm going to beat Jack, and he's vice president of the United States at the time, he says, if I'm going to beat Jack Kennedy, I need to be able to take down Castro, because that was the big hot thing that was in the news. Castro had taken Cuba communist. And so he hires the mafia to kill, Ca to kill Castro. Uh, it doesn't work out, and Nixon loses the election. Jack Kennedy comes in. He's aggressively prosecuting the very mafia and, and many of the very same mafia figures that, that Nixon was working with to kill Castro. Those plots to kill Castro inside operating out of the CIA continue between the CIA and the mafia, and the Kennedys are unaware of them. We get up to, to 1963, and in May of 1963, the head of the Cuban army, the number three most powerful guy in Cuba, African-American, reaches out to, to Bobby Kennedy and says, if you guys can succeed in killing Castro, I will help you take over the political control of this island and turn it into a democracy. Uh, I think that's where we were just a moment ago. Uh, you you, wanna... You've done an amazing job summarizing. And I do want to let people know, in, 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 in our first three books, um, there are a total of 5,000 source endnotes documenting everything we're talking about. And you and I personally talked to uh, more than 25 associates of John and Robert Kennedy, people who worked on like these plans. Yep. Um, in fact, the, first, one of the guys so, who ran so one of these just, plans. Yeah, so we're not just fear. I mean, this is this is why. I mean, I even have helped get you know thousands of pages of files released about this stuff because yes. you and I were told. So, so yeah, so that's where we are in the summer fall of '63. You got the and, and the guy in Cuba. His name was Commander Juan Almeida, right. the head of the Cuban Army. So, so you got the JFK Almeida Q plan going on. You've got the CIA still working with Traficante, Roselli. And, and Carlos Marcello to kill Fidel secretly without telling JFK. But here's the problem. Working on the JFK Almeida coup plan, and you and I talked to the guy, uh, Bobby Kennedy's t number one Cuban guy, Harry. Harry and Ricky and Re William, Louise Williams, yes. Exactly. And, and he was assigned Got to know him pretty three well, people either. in the CIA to work with him. One was E. Howard Hunt, the same guy Nixon had been using back in '60. Hunt's assistant, Bernard Barker, the reason the CIA assigned Barker to work with Hunt back in 1960 was Hunt had helped to overthrow governments before in Latin America, like in Guatemala in 54, but Hunt had no mafia experience. So way back in 60, the CIA said, oh, well, here's Bernard Barker. He's worked for the mafia in Traficante for more than a decade, and now he's a CIA, a low-level CIA agent. Yeah, he'll become your assistant. And then also working with Harry was a guy named James McCord, who would also be one of the Watergate burglars along with Bernard Barker. Right. And so the problem, and, and McCord, by the way, this may be the last time we mentioned him, from all reports, he was, as, as Harry Williams told us and, and other Robert Kennedy associates told me, was an honest, decent guy. So he's not involved with any of the, right. you know, yeah. So yeah, how, but, how and where did the mafia plan to kill Kennedy? I mean, how does that come out of this? Well, so the way it comes out of it is so the, the Kennedys had banned the mafia from having any role in the JFK Almeida coup plan or from reopening their casinos after it succeeded. So the mafia had nothing to gain by letting this coup plan go forward or actually you know, throw Castro. Work. Right. Work right well, and 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 Almeida was going to blame Cat. He wasn't going to take the credit for Castro's death. He was going to blame it, according to files and sources, on a Russian or a Russian sympathizer, you know, and said, "Oh, look, you know, the dastardly Russians killed our beloved Fidel. I, I need some U.S. help to keep the Russians from taking over Cuba." And and no one would ever know, you know, that Almeida had really been working, you know, for JFK all that time. So so that was looking good, but but see, working on that coup plan where E. Howard. Hunt and Hunt's assistant Bernard Barker. I mean, they were arranging like big payments to Commander Almeida through foreign banks, helping to get Almeida's wife and two of his children out of Cuba before this coup would happen. And so Barker was still working for Santo Traficante at that time directly, as well as working on the CIA mafia plots. Hunt was working on the CIA mafia plots. But it, it, it appears from all of my research that, that Barker was the guy who basically told the mafia all about the the JFK Almeida coup plan. So we actually have CIA files that show, yeah, the mafia learned this top secret thing that even Lyndon Johnson, the vice president, wasn't told about. The mafia knew about it. They infiltrated it. And they were able to use it in a way that would force, because if this is a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis, when we all almost got blown up, right? 
And so if, if it came out that, that the U.S. was trying to, you know, working with the number three guy in Cuba to overthrow, you know, that could trigger nuclear war. And, and the mob knew that. You know, they had people like Bernard Barker and another CIA agent working for Marcello by the name of David Ferry. And so, you know, they knew the government could never let this come out. So they managed to, they were planning to kill JFK in a way that would implant evidence so that, that you couldn't expose what they did without exposing Commander Almeida and potentially triggering World War III. And so they, the, the plan was first done, because Roselli was involved, Giancana was under too much pressure, but, but you know, Roselli was fine, Traficanti and, and Marcello liked him. It was first going to be done in Chicago in early November. Then it, if that didn't work, it was going to be done November the 18th in Tampa, an attempt you and I discovered for the first time. Yep. And the fallback for Tampa was going to be Dallas on November the 22nd. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. The assassination of Jack Kennedy, the crimes of Richard Nixon, and now Donald Trump's involvement. We'll get, we're going to circle back around to Trump in just a minute. And Bill Barr. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Lamar, how did the cover-ups begin as soon as Jack Kennedy was shot in Dallas, and how does the Warren Commission figure into all this? Well, so the mob knew that the cover-ups were literally ready and had been planned by the government for more than two months before Dallas because there was something called the Cuba Contingency Plans. Yeah, we found that document in the Kennedy Library. Exactly right. And actually, you found it there, and then I got more later from the National Archives. And so what they were, they were plans. So Robert Kennedy had a special subcommittee of the National Security Council to start. And this wasn't like political hacks like Trump uses. These were like, you know, career, experienced people to start making plans for what happens if Castro finds out about the JFK Almeida coup plan and retaliates, perhaps by killing a an ambassador, an American ambassador in Central America, for example. You know, what would you do? You know, because you wouldn't know, well, hey, did the ambassador get killed in a random street robbery or was this a targeted hit by Cuban intelligence? So you'd want to you know, have federal and military, U.S. military control of the autopsy, all these things. They made these plans for more than two months. Two of the people making those plans were Colonel Alexander Haig, a name that you'll hear later when we talk about Watergate. I'm in charge here. I'm in charge here. And uh, the assistant for the Secretary of the Army Army, a guy in the name of Joseph Califano, who you'll also hear his name, uh, because at the time of Watergate, he was the attorney for the Washington Post and for the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate. So anyway, so those plans were in place through Bernard Barker, the mafia, knew all about that. So literally, they were able to kill JFK in a way they, and I should say, Marcelo Traficanti Roselli all made incredible confessions later in life to trusted associates. And part of the way they kept their operation so secret, more secret than the JFK Almeida coup plan, the mobsters use trusted members of their extensive drug network since Traficanti's father had invented the French Connection heroin network. So people like Jack Ruby were part of that network, a guy that you helped to track down, uh, Michael Victor Mertz, oh, yeah. uh, a, French, a French assassin who had protection from French intelligence. So they were using their most trusted, ruthless people because the, you know, the dollars there. So bottom line is Kennedy's killed. Robert Kennedy is crushed because he, and the mob even killed JFK in, in a way that Almeida had kind of been planning to kill Fidel Castro. So Bobby doesn't know, you know, did, did the plan leak? Is this, you know, Cuba? Is it whatever? And, and then LBK So Bobby he, thinks that his, his plan to kill Castro got turned around boomerang. against his own brother, and he essentially paid for the, the assassination of his own brother. That's his initial thought on this. That's part of it, a big part of it. And, and he just didn't know, because remember, he doesn't know the CIA mafia plots with the very godfathers he's targeting have continued. And the CIA director doesn't know about those plots either. So right, these plots that Nixon started in order and, and to then, win the election in 1960. Exactly. Right. And, then, and, then, and then Lyndon Johnson, who's now vice, who now becomes president, he wasn't even told about the JFK Almeida coup plan. He's just finding out this for the first time. And as he told Harry Williams through Joseph Califano later, you know, he didn't want another Bay of Pigs in his first you know, weeks, months of his administration. Plus, he didn't want World War III. And that's what we were all thought. We, you know, that's what these officials thought we could be facing if this comes out that we were getting ready to help right. 
get rid of Castro. So they had to. So they had to cover it up so that the American people didn't, you know, didn't find out that Castro did it and didn't demand, you know, that we invade Cuba, which would provoke a war with Russia, because they didn't realize that that was the cover up. So and that's exactly why the Warren Commission was created, not to really get to the bottom of the assassination, but to add two reasons for existence. One reason the Warren Commission existed was to prevent World War III, right. and LBJ had to twist the literally not physically, but mentally, twist the arm of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court to get him to serve on it and to chair that commission, which was crazy, because Jack Ruby, who, who killed you know, the Patsy Oswald, you know, his case could have wound up at the Supreme Court. But anyway, Warren didn't want to... LBJ said, look, if you don't do this, we're talking millions of lives. And so he did it. The other thing was, LBJ wanted, because JFK had died in Texas and the general public had no idea about the Chicago and Tampa attempts. He also wanted that report out so he would be, you know, kind of cleared of involvement before the 64 election. So people like Gerald Ford, a conservative congressman from Michigan, was appointed. They had a chief counsel by the name of David Dellen. It was Gerald Ford who helped to create the phony magic bullet theory that, that persists to this day, you know, that says the, the, you know, the bullet coming down at the steep angle you know, hits JFK in the upper back and somehow emerges from his, you know, just below his Adam's apple, which is higher, and then dives down. You know, just ridiculous stuff through through Gerald Ford and this David Bellin guy, and you'll hear both of their names again later. So bottom line is, JFK's dead, LBJ's president, Richard Helms soon becomes the CIA director, and continues those CIA mafia plots all the way till 65, and finally you know, finally pulls that plug, then, then so we're ready 68. to finally jump ahead right. to 1968, and now Richard Nixon's running for president again. Right. You know, Robert Kennedy's been shot, he's dead, Martin Luther King is dead, and, you know, I have to say, Nixon's strategy to win in 68 was an awful lot like Trump's strategy that, that let him steal the election this last time. Which um, is what, treason and bribes? Exactly. Treason, bribery, and help from foreign dictators. Those were the things. You know, Nixon, Nixon got... got, got you think Roger got, Stone got, was behind all this on both, uh, both? Roger Stone was like a young punk. I'm sure he knows a lot of this stuff. Well, I know yeah. he, he's read at least one of, one of our books. Yeah. And so, but yeah, so treason, bribes, and help from foreign dictators. You know, Nixon's the guy that prolonged the... interfered with the the peace settlement that was supposed to hit right before the election and continued the Vietnam War at the cost of, you know, thousands of Americans and tens of thousands of, 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 of Southeast Asian lives, you know, bribes from foreign dictators, you know, bribes from the mafia and super rich guys like Howard Hughes. So, yeah, so basically, you know, Trump to win, to, to steal his last election, just basically did in different ways what Nixon did in 68. And so, so Nixon basically stole that election, you know, and, 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 was, and was riding pretty high. You know, middle America, you know, 1969, 1970, they, 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 even into 71, you know, they they were still supporting Richard Nixon. And then Nixon forms the plumbers, and my recollection of 71, I had two friends who died from heroin overdoses that year in East Lansing. It was everywhere. It was everywhere. And so, so, so there's two different things here. There's the plumbers. Let's hit the plumbers first. So the plumbers were formed not in response to the Pentagon Papers, which is what you will find in 99% of the history books in America. But that didn't start you know, going down as far as Nixon finding out and it being a public thing in the New York Times and, 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 and the newspapers and stuff like that. That, that didn't happen until like, you know, late spring, early summer. The plumbers were being formed in early April, late March, before the whole Pentagon Papers thing exploded. The reason the plumbers were formed was that Johnny Roselli, He'd threatened to leak the same mafia plots back in 67 to America's top journalist, Jack Anderson. And everybody had backed off, and the mainstream media just pretended like they didn't know what that was. And so people had kind of forgotten about that. Now Roselli was facing prison and possible deportation. So he threatened in January of 71 to... Uh, to out the CIA mafia plots, he, he kind of leaked a little information, but not tying them to Nixon. 
And so word was that Nixon's attorney general, John Mitchell, a tough guy who had been JFK's commander back in the PT-109 days in World War II, John Mitchell was one of the toughest, roughest guys in Washington. Reportedly, John Mitchell was in tears when Nixon told him what was about to happen that it was going to come out, because uh, um, John Mitchell, the Attorney General, kind of like today, uh, with Barr, was also you know, trying to manage uh, Nixon's re-election campaign. Right. And, so, and so this was, was horrible. So basically, a deal was cut with Johnny Roselli. Nixon turned back to E. Howard Hunt, the same guy he'd used in 60 and back in 54. And, and then Hunt, to prevent any more leaks, because what happens if Roselli leaked again in prison or, or somebody else tried to leak this information? And they were really worried because a, a guy named Daniel Ellsberg had been uh, good friends with one of the high CIA officials who had worked for Helms on the CIA mafia plots. But even before Ellsberg's name came into it, they just wanted to be ready to plug any of these leaks about the plots in general. So E. Howard Hunt recruited his old buddies like Bernard Barker still working for Santo Traficante, and Frank Sturgis also working for Santo Traficante. Then Pentagon Papers come out. They're worried, not so, because Pentagon Papers were all about stuff before Nixon got elected. They were no threat to Nixon at all. But the CIA said, look, this, Hel- this Ellsberg guy, he knew the daughter of, of, of Helm's number two guy on the CIA mafia plots. And if she told this to Ellsberg, we see what Ellsberg's done with, you know, that could be the end. So then they, so Nixon orders the plumbers to plug that leak, and they break into Ellsberg's psychiatrist office to see if he might have, because they figured, you know, he, that's the kind of thing you might have told your psychiatrist, you know, but, but didn't find anything. But that went off without a hitch. That wasn't traced back to the White House at all. So they're just getting away with murder, literally, and then we come back to the heroin. So there was a huge heroin crisis, not just with the returning vets from Vietnam who were buying and getting hooked on heroin in the service clubs in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam, and in Thailand. In other words, when you would get a few days or a week off, you'd go to these service clubs where Traficanti had cut a deal to, to sell all these guys heroin. And as we will learn shortly, uh, as Alexander Haig will learn shortly, Richard Nixon was getting a cut of those heroin sales every month taken to the White House. Now, that won't come out for a while, but that's what's literally going on. And so that's why Nixon starts his own White House drug unit. And who does he put on that unit? But E. Howard Hunt and Traficanti's men, Bernard Barker and Frank Sturgis. To look into the heroin problem. Right. (laughs) Amazing. Uh, We're talking to uh, Lamar Waldron. His, His most recent book, The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination and Watergate, The Hidden History. So, Lamar, how did the uh, Democrats finally get Nixon to resign? Well, or do you want to finish the previous story? Well, let's let Watergate happen first. Okay. Because what happened was Nixon was just riding high in late 71. So he orders Richard Helms to have one of E. Howard Hunt's friends arrange to assassinate Fidel Castro down in Chile, where uh, uh, the socialist Salvador Allende has been elected. So Nixon and all of Nixon's business supporters, they all hate Allende, right? And so this is kind of like a twofer. You can assassinate Castro and do it in Chile, so it will embarrass Allende and hurt his standing in the socialist world. But Hunt's friend is not able to get the Cuban exiles, and these were people that knew Bernard Barker and people like that, too, to pull that off. Castro finds out about this hit, though, that he was almost killed there, and he's royally pissed off. So Castro compiles a dossier of all the U.S. attempts. Uh, I shouldn't say all. I should say a lot of the U.S. attempts to kill him going back to when Nixon was vice president. And Castro gives that dossier of of CIA assassination attempts to the Chilean ambassador in Washington, D.C. So the CIA, because they had infiltrated that embassy, of course, because that's what our CIA does, they find out that there's this huge 100-plus page dossier with pictures and dates and places, and it lists all the assassination attempts against Fidel that started under Vice President Nixon. And so Nixon's riding high, but he knows, you know, he knows it wasn't just assassinating Castro. The million-dollar bribe was part of that deal, too. And guess what? In 72, there's a new million-dollar bribe 
again to get Hoffa out of prison this time, but with special conditions so the mafia didn't have to keep dealing with him as the head of the Teamsters. So there's a new million-dollar bribe on top of the old million-dollar bribe. Nixon's worried if this comes out, if the Chilean embassy gives that to the DNC, he's toast. He's not getting reelected, even if he's running against George McGovern, who I'm proud I voted for. But so, so first he has the plumbers burglarize the Chilean embassy, which he talks about on a tape that wasn't released until 1999, in which you won't find, I don't think, in maybe one other Watergate book besides mine. And he, you know, and he had the boys yeah, burglarize it. He knows all about that. And then they only find part of the dossier there, but it's enough to scare them. You know, because they can say, oh, my God, this is a few pages out of a 100-plus page document. And so that, that's, that's the reason they, they start trying to burglarize the DNC. There are four attempts, two successful. They're, they're caught on the last one. They weren't there just for bugging. They had, they, they had enough film to take thousands of pictures because they were going to photograph everything. Almost every one of the Watergate burglars had worked on some aspect of the CIA mafia plots, so they would recognize what they found. That all happened, but all that's happening, Watergate happens in June of 72. Nixon's overwhelmingly reelected that fall in November, and he's riding super high. Finally, it's James McCord, who is the honest guy in this whole plumbers group. Uh, well, I mean, he has a conscience, and so he, he starts spilling stuff to the Judge Sirica, to the televised hearings. It turns out they're tapes, and then everything it drags out, and then we come to early August of 1974 when Nixon finally resigns. But, but it's a myth that Goldwater and some Republican senators got him to resign, and, and when we come back, I'll, I'll explode that myth, and then we'll get into Donald Trump. Cool. So there's a, a big myth that after the Supreme Court ordered finally, you know, more than two years after the Watergate break-in, the Supreme Court finally orders the release of, of the, the most important of the, of the Nixon tapes. And there's this myth that, that Goldwater and a couple of other senators went and, and talked Nixon into resigning. But, you know, if, if you read the Arizona papers, who knew Goldwater well and interviewed him frequently and they talked to him at the time, you know, that's like a total myth. They just went to say, look, you know, you're going to get impeached in the House because the Democrats controlled both houses of Congress and, and you don't have very much support in the Senate. So they weren't trying to talk him into resigning at all. And, and Goldwater, the rest of his life, resented people, you know, repeating that really? lie, basically. Yeah. So why did Nixon resign? So Nixon was telling people he was going to fight it because national security was on his side. He was going to raise national security this, national security that, and he was going to get off. Now, what did he mean by national security? And by the way, the Senate Watergate Committee had started interviewing Johnny Roselli back in January, uh, January, February of 74. But, but that whole investigation suddenly got shut down by Sam Irvin, the head of the Senate Watergate Committee. In other words, so the, they never really found out Nixon's role in the same. And then Roselli ended up chopped up into pieces in a drum off the coast of Florida. That will soon happen. But the reason that investigation got shut down, the reason Nixon thought he could fight impeachment and win it was Commander Almeida was still in place and still number three in Cuba. So Nixon was still going to have his October surprise. Well, well, no, what he was going to have was he was going to threaten, I think, to out the number three guy in Cuba. In other words, the number three guy uh. in Cuba being unexposed and potentially of use again, you know, in other words, Nixon was willing to throw Al Mahid and his family under the bus if that's what it took. I think that's how how somebody went to Sam Irvin and got him to stop the Roselli side of the investigation after they'd interviewed Roselli once. Um, and so he was ready to do that again. So how did Nixon get forced to resign? Alexander Haig had finally had had, had who, who is now Nixon's chief of staff. It's Mick Mulvaney. General Haig had had one of his his men from the Army Investigative Service, I think it's called the CIC or something like that, actually track one of Nixon's 
couriers who brought the money, and sometimes it was gold back from Southeast Asia. And and Haig had had put you know two and two together and realized Nixon was getting these drug this drug payoff money from Traficante's drug operations. And so now that would not that was not known to the Senate Watergate Committee. That was not known to the House Impeachment Committee. That was not known to anybody. That would not come out for another I think more than two years. We have one so, minute, Lamar. So it appears that, that Haig got Nixon to resign by cutting the deal with Ford. Okay, so that's, that's what got them to resign. But all this still didn't come out because there was, a, there was a commission to investigate ties between Watergate and the JFK assassination called the Rockefeller Commission, but Ford appointed it. People like Ronald Reagan were on it. David Bellin, his old counsel, ran it. They didn't turn up all the stuff. Then you had people like George Bush Sr. and William Barr in the CIA withholding files, not just from the Rockefeller Commission, but from the Senate Church Committee. So all this stuff so we're Bill Barr played about, a role in all this, too. I'm sorry, what was that? Bill Barr played a role in all this. Stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, he, he was a counsel for the CIA when they were withholding all the important stuff about Barker, Hunt, Roselli, the same obvious thoughts. They were withholding all that stuff Amazing. from these, these congressional committees. We are uh, just plain old flat out out of time. <laughs> Lamar and that Wall- brings us to today. But, but I, you, know, I, you know, for the rest of it, you can just look in the headlines of the newspapers, and, and it's going to play out, I think, I think a lot like it did, which means it's going to take a heck of a long time That's to get rid of Trump. That's very That's interesting. my prediction. Okay, thank you. Lamar Waldron, uh, Watergate, The Hidden History, The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination, and the books that Lamar and I wrote together, Legacy of Secrecy and Ultimate Sacrifice. And thank you so much, Tom. Thank you, Lamar. Great talking with you. Tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.